0: We started our introduction to Ephesians last Sunday, really trying to learn from the Ephesians' origin story, Acts 19, and kind of get the big idea of the book. But also note that with the history of the Ephesian church, their challenge that Jesus rebuked them for in the book of Revelation was not due to a lack of leadership. Um, leadership's, of course, incredibly important. There's plenty of teaching scripture about the need for leadership roles, apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic, pastoral teaching to build people up. But the Ephesians church had Paul, Apollos, Timothy, John, Mary, and Jesus is ready to pull the plug in Revelation 2 if they don't change. Um, and that's important for a lot of reasons um, because... Uh, it's easy to, number one, put leadership on pedestals or just blame them. And in either case, it could be a sign that you're not stepping up and just being who you need to be to make your world better and, and just take ownership for your circle of influence. There's a lot of reasons why we probably do that. But at the end, um, it's because we're broken in our spirit. We are, we're spiritually dead that's that little picture of the human being is kind of your self your awareness your psyche an orientation to the physical things in your body and an orientation to spiritual things but it's right in that spiritual grounding that we are most broken from the fall and so we tend to look to physical things to make them do stuff that they never were intended to do so As you kind of work through all that, there's that quote from Victor Hugo, we we need an idea, we need an aspiration, we need a dream, and from a Christian perspective, you want to make sure it's biblical. The book of Ephesians provides a lot of these things for us so that we can stay on mission. There's the things I talked about, about getting the big idea, and really looking at this letter. So it's all about sitting, walking and standing <laughs> that christ is seated at the right hand of god far above all principalities and powers believers are already seated with him it's going to be starting from that place of rest then you get seven walkings through the book of ephesians i showed them last week we'll be walking through them as we go through the book so that you can stand and win the battle for your own heart your spirit And when you feel like you're losing heart and you're getting discouraged, it's incredibly important, especially as a Christian, to recognize that the devil is real, evil is real, and the best way for Satan to stop us from being the church and the people God wants us to be is just get us discouraged, break our spirit, get us to just check out and settle for lesser things. He's not really too concerned if you've successfully set up your 401k and you feel like life is good things like that's fine (laughs) and does the scripture talk about financial planning and stuff yes i'm not bashing financial planning i'm saying a lot of us as we live life we lose the heart to keep trying to make things better and and just stand and take that stand and and really give christ the credit for all those efforts and really keep it gospel centered it's easy to just start settling. And we kind of take ourselves out of the fight. So don't let that happen. Stand. Okay? And as we go through all that, and we come to today, you're talking about God's redemption of history. God is the one, with humanity having lost that spiritual grounding with God, God is the one who made a choice. And that choice flows from his heart and his character. He made a choice to redeem people, to incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, to enter history, ultimately to meet you, every one of you, where you are. The question is, what are you gonna do with that? Will you imitate Christ? Will you make that same choice to be someone who tries to redeem Who tries to meet people where they are to incarnate in their world to enter history will you do that because that's what God's done to make salvation possible for you imitation really is the highest form of flattery we just had a great worship time of celebrating and we ended with praise God praise God praise God praise God if we admire him that much imitation is the highest form of showing that we need to make the same choice he made We need to seek to redeem things that have gone awry. It's easy to stand outside and criticize. The whole fact of Jesus coming shows that God's not just standing outside and criticizing. Before he would ever issue a word of critique, he's coming in and saying, I love you. I'm for you. How can we make this better? How can we fix it? And I will do whatever I can to fix it, even give my life meet them where they are, lean on the, to do that, you have to lean on the promises and the tools that God has given you to help you do that. And Ephesians 1 mentions some of them. That's worth exploring. We just sang, the earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine. But God, who called me, who met me here, Like you, Aaron, second row sheriff, here. He came and he makes it that real. And it's that real right now. God is trying to meet you now, here. And he made that choice, he took that initiative. And if you hear that call and you believe it, then when this earth dissolves like snow, when the sun forbears to shine, God is forever yours. (coughs) You yeah, that's worth the effort to really kind of connect with that. And so that's what we want to try to do today. God redeems our history. He reveals our destiny. And if we are going to find rest, sitting. Travel well in this house of our sojourning until we leave it or it dissolves like snow. Walk. And stand for something that lasts. For eternity stand we must enter the way there's something we have to enter and there's something we have to desire because if you don't have a desire for it that's your fuel and desires are crazy and all over the place and you can't run wild with them I always say don't follow your heart lead your heart but the point being your heart <laughs> you have to have desires to for something better So there's something we have to enter, and then there's a desire we have to make. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, But before we get to entering and desiring, there's a couple things I wanted to mention. Um, And number one, I said at the beginning of the service, we have to intentionalize emptying ourselves of what we think we already know so we can hear. We have to look at the book of Ephesians like I'm meeting someone that I'm really somehow drawn to, and I really, really want to get to know, um, and not familiarity breeds contempt, so I check out. Yeah, I've read that verse before. Um, you know, that's not going to cut it. We're not going to get from the study what we need to get if we take that kind of mentality. Um, and it's easier to just meet somebody new than treat someone who you've known for 20 years like you're meeting them for the first time. But how important is it to do that, especially here? Because I want us to celebrate and really celebrate the human chain from God to you. (laughs) And that's really the beauty of the book of Ephesians. Um, We don't publicize this as much as we used to, but the church has a ministry impact statement. I probably need to publicize it more and even change it, bring in next generation people and help tweak it. Um... But we really kind of focus on three big things we want to make disciples we want to focus on volunteer led ministry equip people for ministry and then the third point is we want to embrace demographics the whole thing of people and where they're born and movements as god ordained paul said that to the people in athens That out of one man, God made all the peoples and kindreds and tribes and nations and tongues and languages um, and determined when they would live, where they would live, and the exact bounds of their habitations, all the journeys in their pilgrimage. And he did this for a purpose, that you might reach out for him and find him and seek him. Because if you did, you would find him. Because he's not far from any one of us. Whatever your lineage, whatever your background, he's not far from any of us for in him we live and we move and we have our being. So we look at the craziness and the wars and the rumors of wars and the, um, all the different cultures and ethnic divides and prejudices and challenges and they're all there and they're all real. But through that chaotic mess, <laughs> God has a purpose, and he's in it. And Paul tells us his purpose in Acts 17 is, if you reach out for him, you'll find him, because he's not far from you. He's trying to meet you and get to know you. And so we kind of have to embrace that demographic, and, that's, and Paul did it. And it was a major challenge for Paul, being this you know, Jewish Pharisee of Pharisees and all of a sudden hearing, oh, all ethnicities? There's a strong ethnic component to that that's very relevant to to us today that we kind of miss. The Jewish people were so ethnically based. There were the Jews and then every other ethnic group. They didn't even bother. (laughs) You're just Gentiles. (laughs) There's only one ethnic group that matters. And that's not why God chose them. He did choose them. That's not why he chose them. He said from the beginning, In your seed, Abraham, all the ethnic groups will be blessed. But that's what they did with that, in their fallenness. And Paul got woken up and he saw, No, God chose you for your ethnic group and where you would live. And we need to look at that as God's way of reaching into history um, because things are changing. Historically, any independent Protestant church is a child of the Reformation, whatever your specific beliefs or whatever. And the Reformation is a product of a kind of Euro and then eventually American-centric Christianity, which of course makes it largely white. And And that's dominated the world for centuries until the 2020s. Demographically, for the first time, since we've been able to track it, and since the, Reform, you know, since the great missionary efforts of the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, even 20th century, um, the 50, over half of people that would profess some form of Christendom, there's elements in Asia, but it's becoming increasingly afrocentric and Latino-centric. It's very different. And we have to be aware of that and celebrate how God is moving in history. When we don't, we tend to start thinking, well, the church is failing, the church is failing. It's not. The church is booming, but it does mean that a lot of what we assume are the way to do it are kind of the way Europeans did it. And there will be, there will be increasing Latino, African elements to a really biblically oriented church. It's just the way God is moving. And we don't need to fight that. We need to celebrate that and embrace that. God is the one who determined how he would build his church as people move through all their habitations. Because we want to and, and, and by the way, this isn't the biggest thing God's ever done. The biggest thing God ever did is when he started the church. <laughs> and the apostles pulled it off in that first generation when they went from this totally Hebrew-centric, Jewish-centric to global and bringing in every kindred, tribe, nation, tongue, and language. And there was a lot of challenges, and they pulled it off. And we need to do the same thing in our own small way so that we can enter... Well, empty yourself, learn new, celebrate the human chain from God to you. So you can enter the greatest story ever. That's on the back of your bulletin. It is the greatest story ever. And those three points, something we need to meet, something we need to identify, something we need to join. That's what I want to focus on for these last minutes that I have with you here today from Ephesians 1. Okay. First, let's start with verses 1 through 2. And meet the apostolic link to the Ephesians. Okay. So, but think of it as not, oh, here's this abstract thing out here that happened. This is how God builds his church. And it started on the foundation of the apostles and prophets after Jesus ascended back to heaven. So what God did through Paul or Peter or John in this apostolic way that's foundational to church is what we need to be doing. Okay. So the, how that got to the Ephesians and God entered into the Ephesian story and redeemed it was Paul. Paul showed up. and He decided to represent God in Ephesus. And then later he writes this letter to them. It's probably a circular letter and going to a lot of churches, but especially to the Ephesians. And he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Process that. As you meet people, the first thing you want is, are you trying to get to a point where you have enough of a relationship with them where you can say, I really just want to represent Christ to you. And I want, I want to be gracious. I want to be a peacemaker so that I represent our Father and the Lord Jesus well. And just don't stray too far from that foundation of how we should conduct human relationships with anybody. I want to be a channel of grace, of peace, because I am trying to be someone who is a, cha- a link in the chain from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ to you. That sounds so simple, but we don't do it. <laughs> we get so easily distracted. And Paul's bringing that focus. I'm, I'm, he's not distracted, he's on mission. Okay. now if we can just do that and then you really want to understand what Paul is saying to the Ephesians again we have to unlearn empty ourselves what we think we know we become so systemized in how we even look at the Bible that we miss what it's saying and the Bible it's not just this but the Bible is a human book <laughs> it's also a divine book just like Jesus is fully human and fully divine but the Bible is a human book, and it is not laid out systematically. And so it's really, we need to study it as literature first. Especially when you come to something like the book of Ephesians. And it does teach, we extract a lot of really, really good systematic theology from it. But then there's something about the human mind where that systematic theology that we have extracted from it, which is our best attempt to understand it, then becomes the means by which we understand the text. And you see how dangerous that is? God gave us the text. (laughs) And we kind of develop this system by how we interpret the text that isn't really rooted in literature and language and communication. It's rooted in our systems. And the systems aren't bad. Well, some of them are, some of them aren't, but systemizing isn't bad, we just have to be careful. And so as we try to come back to the book of Ephesians and look at it as literature, I have two simple things for the rest of today. But I find that we, they're not simple. Number one is as you look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 3 through 14, which is the longest single sentence in the New Testament, and what I said last week is the greatest sentence ever written because it captures the heart of the greatest heart that there ever was, God's heart. This is one sentence in the Greek. That it was written in. What we read is verses 3 through 14 is one sentence. Wow. Paul is just caught up in this prophetic, poetical adoration. So we got to be really careful to make sure we interpret the literature correctly. And here's how you start number one, got to identify something. Who's the us? Who is the us? because he tells us, but we turn around and we read us, 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 and we immediately jump to you and me today. There's applications to you and me today, but that's, we got to interpret the literature. Who is the us? In verses three through 12, because that's the longest part of the sentence. And I don't normally reread the scripture reading, especially if someone like Sherry reads it and she does such a good job, but I'm going to today because I want to emphasize certain things starting in verse 3, where this sentence begins. And it starts with, God is blessed. <laughs> God is just blessed. He's beautiful, he's good, he's happy, he's blessed. And that's as heart and he wants to bless you. That's kind of where he starts. But he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined... Oh, we get caught up on that word big time. It only shows up in a couple of chapters of the Bible, but it taps into deep things in the humans. All right, but let's not get caught up on predestined today. He predestined us. Let's remember, we're trying to identify who's the us, who's the we. For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, that's Christ, the beloved Christ, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, Might be to the praise of his glory. Who were the first to hope in Christ? See, that's all the way at the end, almost the end of that long sentence, but it's not that hard to answer. Who were the first to hope in Christ? What's that? Jews. Okay, they were Jews, but most of the Jews didn't. The disciples, the apostles, those first prophets. When you get into chapter 2 of Ephesians and you say, that's the foundation. So what you're really getting is, look, Jesus says this in the Gospels. Look, I could have gone to Sodom and Gomorrah and they would have repented. I could have chosen to go to Tyre and Sidon and they would have remained to this day. I chose to enter history this way. And then you have an eyewitness generation and some of them believe. And that's the first to hope in Christ. All this stuff about these lofty things that he's done, including the predestined, God entered that generation and he did these things for those who were the first to hope in Christ. We need to identify the us and make sure that we are coming back to that foundation. And after 2,000 years of church history, a lot of really being an apostolic church has nothing to do with your theory and your system of apostolic succession. It has to do with, are we coming back to that foundation? And we have a significant amount of their writings available to us to this day. <laughs> okay. That's what, basically what we call our New Testament. And so Paul is like, I'm... Part of that, he took me who persecuted the church and he made me an apostle. The we, I'm part of that generation of eyewitnesses. It doesn't have to come into your system and theory of the inspiration of the scriptures. We're a Bible church. We fully teach the inspired word of God. We think that they're infallible. But the arrogance comes in on just a human level, when you don't interpret the literature, were you personally taught by Jesus? Did he choose to show up in your world in a tangible form where you can touch him, see him, hear him, live with him for three and a half years, have him directly disciple you? And now we're going to come along and be like, "Ah, I don't think Paul's right about that. Who are you to say that? Just on a human level. What advantage do you have over him? Oh, I have these centuries of culture. He has centuries of culture see what creeps in there is we're better now we're not that is a that is the privileged generation we can never be that spiritually privileged until we see jesus face to face that's the us the we that's not the ephesians that's not you and me Now there's all these promises for that generation. They're blessed in the heavenly realms, chosen, holy, blameless, predestined, adopted, in accordance with God's pleasure and will. That's all true. But it's more concrete and less abstract and systematic than we want to make it. It's incarnational. It's showing up in history. The big question, once we realize what Christ has done by showing up in that generation, the big question is, how do I get included in that? which is the question he answers. said, we, all those statements who were the first to hope in Christ, and then verse 13, this thing that God did crashes into the Ephesians world and through the Ephesians us. In him, you also. Now you can get included. How can you get included? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... And you believed in him. When you did that. I don't want to get technical with the language here, but just as an interpretation of literature, the verb is sealed. God did something in you. This is how you got included in this incredible thing he did by showing up in Israel. And Jesus saying, Peter, Andrew, James, John, I will make you fishers of them. And there's all this incredible thing that he's done. How do we get sealed with that? That's the action you're looking for. And these things are antecedent to that. They're prior to that. When you heard and you believed, you got pulled into that story. And when you did that, God sealed you. How he got you to that point where you heard and believed, how his word doesn't return void and empty and does work that in people, okay, we can debate about that and talk about that and love that and celebrate that and the mystery of that forever. But the bottom line is literally, like based on the literature of the text, if you hear and you believe, then God seals you. that's the, that's the God action. He seals you. Now there's a lot that comes out of that because see God has this thing that we call foreknowledge. So if you heard and you believed and he seals you, it's not like later on he's like, oh, I made a mistake and he unseals you because you're okay. That doesn't happen. Because that horrible thing you're going to do 30 years after you heard and believed that you think means God has done with you. He knew you were going to do that when he sealed you. He knew you were going to do that before the creation of the world. It didn't surprise him in that way on an emotional level. Does it disappoint him and hurt him? Sure. But we conduct relations like, well, if I'd known you were going to do that, I would have never been your friend. And God's, and then we project that onto God. And God's like, you're not, you're surprising yourself. Peter, your denial shocked you. It didn't shock me. He sealed you with a promised Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit's the third person of the Trinity. Yeah, I'm not trying to be systematic today. I'm not trying to talk about systematic doctrine. But the Holy Spirit's God. <laughs> Okay. So God sealed you with himself. And that is the guarantee. That's the security deposit. It means the same thing back then that it meant now. If I put a guarantee on a house, a security deposit on the house, and then I bail and not buy in the house, I lose my deposit. So if God, if you hear and you believe, now again, there's a heart element to that that we can't see. But Romans 10, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, and believe in your heart. That's the part we can't see, but God can see. So if there came a point where you heard and you really believed, he seals you, and he backs up that seal. The seal is like that seal, that wax ring seal. You know, you can't break the seal. Remember the the scroll in Revelation with the seven seals? God seals you. And he seals you with his own spirit. And that spirit is the deposit that he places on you. So if You lost your salvation. If God didn't bring you home after He puts this deposit on you, what does He lose? himself. Himself. He loses His own spirit if He doesn't bring you home. That's so clear from the literature, but we create these massive systems because we don't know whether you really believed or not. But God does. I know my sheep. Not one of them will perish. So even the apostles often speak in speculative terms because they don't automatically know. But when you understand, but Paul knows what God does, he just isn't always sure whether God did it to you. Okay, but the issue is not the teaching. The issue is our lack of knowledge. And that bugs us. God's like, you know, you don't actually need to know that. Peter, what is that to you? How does that change what you need to do? You know what that's really revealing when you're getting all worked up about that? You don't trust me to work in that person's life sufficiently. But the question is about what God does. Now, if you want a picture of that, there is this guy who's kind of, he's not because he's the greatest super saint, but he did certain things that become the pattern of how a soul gets saved. His name's Abraham. And what's the pattern? Abraham believed. And God credited it to him as righteousness. And you can go read that passage right after Abraham believed, and God gives him all these promises because Abraham believed. Abraham says, yeah, well, how will I know? <laughs> Which is us! <laughs> we want to know! And God's like, shocked he didn't see that one coming, right? Of course not No, he's like, all right, Abraham, your culture, your place, your time, this stuff has meaning to you. You've got this idea of covenants and treaties and the ancient Near East, and it involves putting your life on the line. Right? Cormac McCarthy. (laughs) Put your life into the stakes. You want to gamble? Let's gamble. Put your life on the line. And that ancient Eastern treaty, Abraham understood that. That's his world. And so he went and he got the animals and he cut them in half, and then the person you're entering the treaty with would walk through the parts of the animal with you. And they were both saying, if either one of us breaks the treaty, let us be like this animal. Animals. So Abraham does all that, pretty gory, pretty bloody, and he sets it all up and he's like, the Jeopardy clock starts going. Ding, 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 ding. And God's not showing up. And Abraham's like, "Ah," and he finally, he's human. He finally starts to get tired, probably freaking out. Like, wait a minute, is God going to do this? You know, he said, how will I know? And finally, Abraham falls asleep and he goes into a trance and he has a vision. And God shows up in the vision and walks through the parts of the animal by himself. That's Ephesians 1. God is saying, I will bring you home. I will do this for you. And if I don't, I get cut in half. I lose my own spirit. You're not even walking through it with me. It's not about your works. You believed. You heard, Abraham. You believed. I've sealed you, I will do it. We so need that so we can be free to just ride that wave and join the you. <laughs> that is the key. That's the point of God's spear penetrating history where it goes through all these centuries, all these divine choices. We need to trust him with that. That creates a Jesus of Nazareth being born and entering into Jerusalem of that day and meeting these people, not those people. And through that invasion that God made and that spear thrust in history, on this day, the point of that spear comes to you says have you heard you have will you believe and if you do he will seal you he will give you a guaranteed security deposit his own spirit so that if you will get the inheritance and that's what's supposed to keep us going until we acquire possession of it and then we see it in the coming ages and then we know Karl Barth said it so well, he's by no means the most orthodox theologian, but he's quite contemplative. And he did a lot to bring liberal theology back, I don't mean liberal like political, I'm not saying that's good or bad, but liberal theology back to something closer to a neo-orthodox position. And he said at one point, I don't need to know, I believe. And he came to that place where that's all he needed i pick my actions because of what i believe i don't need to know that's an emotional level of fortitude and maturity that most of us don't have join the you all the turnings of history all the demographics all the cultural things all the political shifts all the good all the bad all the wars and rumors of wars comes down to that thrust of God's spear point into history when that point, fine point of the spear narrows and hits you, Kyle. You, Jennifer. No, you. Samantha. <laughs> I actually knew it was Samantha. I call her, her mom so many times. So that's a little bit of an inside joke. <laughs> Until it hits you. And then you hear, do you believe? Join the you. that spear point comes down and you this is like an Iliad description. You're in the battle of life and you just ran into the Achilles, God himself, on the field of battle. And here comes the point of the spear right at you. What are you going to do? When God's light meets you in your culture, in your ethnicity, in your triumphs, in your defeats, in your blessings, in your wounds, none of those things are the thing. It's so easy for us to get caught up in them. They're real. They're important. They're part of our story. God knows your story. The real thing is, when you encounter that word from God, how will you respond? How do you join the you? If you've never done that, you can do it right now in the privacy of your own seat. And just trust Him. Will you hear and believe so that you can desire the dream, but that's next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for how through people, through what you now call the church, you redeem histories. Help us to celebrate that chain of people starting with Jesus himself and that first generation who were eyewitnesses of him. And just continue to build on that foundation and represent you well. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.